Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to see everybody this morning in beautiful Houston, Texas. A lovely, a lovely place to live this time of year. Uh, public apology to begin. The uh, I've been married 48 years, and the first 40 of those years, uh, our conversations would go on occasion, not always, but you know, every once in a while you have a disagreement. And, and she would say, when you said that or did that, that hurt my feelings. And I inevitably would say, well, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And she would say, but when you said that or did that, that hurt my feelings. And I would say, well, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And we'd kind of go like this. And after 40 years, it dawned on me that my motives, <laughs> however pure and noble they were, didn't solve the situation. And life has been really wonderful the last eight years when I stopped saying that <laughs> and we went a different direction. And so last night, Elf and G had invited me to dinner. And I, I was a no-show. And I'm not going to explain why. But they sat in a restaurant without me. And before this congregation of witnesses Elf and G, I apologize. At any rate, now, by the way, I've done this a little personally too, but I just need to know that every once in a while a public apology is needed. Uh, there was concern last night. Elf called and said, Are you okay? Uh, the thunderstorms and the tornadoes in Middle Tennessee. I was unaware until we had landed what was about to take place and then what did take place in Middle Tennessee and Southern Kentucky. Restaurants were destroyed and semis were launched into the air and homes collapsed and lives were lost. Little children yesterday this time were playing and laughing and jumping and now their families are in sore distress. My family was safe, but several families have just experienced the worst imaginable storm. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you brought your Bibles, or if you have a device. The text will be taken this morning from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. <clears throat> Here's how it's described in Mark. That evening, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And after dismissing the crowd, they got into a boat and launched out onto the sea. A fierce gale of wind develops, and the waves break over the boat, and the boat starts filling with water. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. So they awoke him, saying, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? So Jesus stood up, 
rebukes the wind and says to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind stills and the sea perfectly calm. And to the disciples, he says, why are you afraid? Have you no faith still? And then they became even more afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'm wondering this morning if you have ever seen Jesus. People driving on Interstate 75 are going way north into Michigan, past Detroit, think they have when they gaze up at the humongous image of Jesus that is visible to passing motorists outside the Dixie Baptist Church. Jesus, with his Romanesque nose, with his high cheek bones and his well-groomed brows and his deep blue eyes and his thin lips and his thin blonde long hair and his light-colored skin is posing in that portrait a serene heavenly heavenly looking gaze and he and he looks to be of Scandinavian descent as if his last name might be Knudsen or Swenson you should go there sometime. You'll see it. Maybe you already have. I used to have that same photograph in my wallet for years, really. Thomas Jefferson thought that he had captured Jesus of Nazareth. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man of illegitimate birth, of a benevolent heart and enthusiastic mind, who without pretenses of divinity ended up believing them. He was punished capitally for sedition by being gibbeted according to Roman law. Thomas Jefferson thought he had found the real Jesus by, in his words, abstracting what is really his from the rubbish in which it's buried, easily distinguished by its luster from the dross of his biographers and as separate from that as the diamond is from the dunghill. Luster and diamond, sure, but dross and rubbish are inappropriate terms, I think, for the content of Jesus' life and the reality of ours. Who is Jesus? The Norwegian Jesus who looks like the image in the mind of Richard Selman when he painted him in 1940? Or Jefferson's Jesus, a diamond extracted from the dross and the dung of, and rubbish of life? Who is Jesus? That's the very question that the gospel of Mark relentlessly and creatively pursues, the gospel that I just read from. In Mark's gospel, people are crowding in to see Jesus, loaves and fishes. I mean, who wouldn't? In Mark's story, people push in. They jam jaws. They block city entrances. They intrude on Jesus' private life. Why, he can't even take a meal. He can't even get a moment's rest. In Mark's account, though, the crowd only wants a glimpse. His family thinks he's lost his senses. The town folks say, who? You're talking about Jesus? Oh, son of Joseph, I don't think he's done those miracles. No. And the people who do get up and close to Jesus are filled with fear. Who is Jesus? 
That's not an easy story to tell. It's complicated. It's nuanced, like most good stories are. And Mark's tale is indirect and honest. He wants us to believe something about Jesus and live like Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, is a collector of stories, arranged like a bouquet, so that this rich array of tales has as its central question, who is he? Mark's story is indirectly told, but it's so well organized. Mark has brought together four stories, the first of which is the one that I read, to paint his portrait of Jesus, and his portrait of Jesus differs, differs dramatically from Richard Selman's and Thomas Jefferson's. Take a look at just one section of Mark, this image, the storm at sea. It's positioned next to a collection of three other stories. The one that follows is Jesus casting out a legion of demons. A man possessed by evil is made whole and clean. And then a 12-year-old girl, the daughter of a synagogue official, is gravely ill and dies while Jesus is on the way to to heal her. And then when he arrives, he raises her from the dead. And finally, a woman who has suffered endless hemorrhaging is cured of her sickness. And that's the collage that is Mark's collection that shows us who Jesus is. And there are stories that demonstrate his power over death and sickness and evil and the forces of nature. Who is Jesus? That's Mark's all-consuming question, his central interest, his deepest concern. Not only his concern, he wants us to examine people's response to Jesus as well. Oh, I can tell that I'm losing you. You're thinking, what is this, a college class? Are we supposed to be taking notes? Will there be a quiz? Is that what those lines inside the bulletin are for? (laughs) I feel like I'm a tour guide leading you along the Sea of Galilee. You have your cell phone cameras there. You're taking selfies of the Sea of Galilee with the Sea of Galilee in the background. You got your wide brim hats on to protect you from the Middle Eastern sun. And I stand on the seashore. I'm lecturing. I'm talking about these sudden and powerful storms that will develop quickly and high winds that'll come down the Galilean hills and create billows in the water of the Sea of Galilee, and you nod politely. (laughs) You smile for your camera as you stand safely on the shore with the blue sea in the background. And if a storm were to arise, why, we would pull our jacket over our heads, and we would scamper for shelter. You'd be worried about your hair and your makeup and your cell phone. Our old Sunday school ways come back over us. We're seated there in second grade wooden chairs in a semicircle around Sister Mortensen and her familiar flannel graph. There's flannel graph Jesus in his white robe, arms under his head, on the pillow at the end of the boat, out at sea. And then Sister Mortensen places dark clouds in the corner of the board covering the sun, and a lightning bolt comes down and it shoots toward the boat, and we should be afraid. But we're not afraid because we heard the same story in first grade Sunday school class, and we know that Jesus will stand and calm the storm. And Sister Mortensen peels back the gray cloud to reveal a happy, smiling sunshine. 
And then, after class, we go into church, and we pull the hymnal from the back of the pew, and we sing that Stamps Baxter classic, Master, the tempest is raging, I perish, I perish, dear Master, oh, hasten to take control. And then in four-part harmony, the chorus strikes, the wind and the sea obey thy will, peace be still, peace be still. Yeah. That's our experience. This story is so two-dimensional, so flat, so predictable, so distant and remote from life, like experiencing a coastal storm or a storm in the middle of Tennessee, watching on our televisions in the safety of our homes, gaslight in the fireplace. Mildred, will you look at that? Just terrible. Would you bring me another cup of hot cocoa? What I propose to do this morning instead is to have you step into the boat. At the beginning of Mark's story in chapter 4 and verse 1, Mark takes the trouble to picture Jesus on the sea in verse 1. In the span of one verse, Mark mentions the, the sea three times and the boat once. For residents of the Heights here in beautiful Houston, Texas, the literal Greek is pretty dramatic. It says, literally, he got in the boat and sat on the sea. Sat on the sea is exactly how it feels when you step into this boat. The boat's 26 feet long, 8 feet wide, 4 feet deep. The length, almost the length of a first down. Big enough for 12 small passengers. It's a big rowboat raised at one end. Nothing more than a thin slice of wood between you and the sea bottom. Step into the boat. One foot secure on the dock. One foot touching the boat's unsteady floor, moving. Now both feet... Have your arms steady yourself. Hold on to the side. Smell the wet cedar and fish. And listen to the water lapping against the boat. Oh, so innocent there in verse 1 before we launch. But by the time our story really starts, we're in the middle of the sea. And the wind is picking up. And the sea is getting choppy. And the sky is growing dark. Gray clouds, black clouds, the sun is darkened, and the sail snaps, and the wind howls, and the air is wet, and the waves swell, and you hold on, and your knuckles are white, and the boat rises, and it falls, and the boat rises, and it plunges, and your teeth jar when you hit, and lightning flashes, and thunder crashes, and it rings in your head. Breathe, you have to remind yourself. Breathe, and your heart races, and then it stops, and you're breathing, God, please. And the storm is violent now, and the wind cuts, and the sea opens and closes, and the waves crest and break over the deck. And this little boat is it's, it's sinking heavy and low now, and the water sloshes around your calves. And James and Andrew are bailing out, and the disciples are yelling, and they're wide-eyed. And the wind is screaming louder, and the boat creaks, and there's a sharp sound. And you think, are we breaking? And somebody grabs Jesus' cloak and shakes him and says, wake up. We're about to perish. Don't you care? And Jesus 
he stands and he rebukes the wind. He says, hush, be still. And the wind quits and the sea is calm. And then he says to the disciples, are you afraid? Don't you have faith still? And then they became even more afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that calms the wind and the sea? They knew a song back then, a song that had been, would be familiar to all of them. It's a song found in the 107th Psalm. It sounds so familiar. The song beginning in 23 of Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. And their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunks. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. And he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. That's not, I, what I just read is not an eyewitness account that was told the day after in the Judean times. It's not a reflective poem that was written by one of the 12 disciples. It's not a piece that was composed centuries later by some medieval monk. No, in fact, that song that I just read was published before Jesus was ever born. It was already in circulation when Mark composed this gospel. It would have been very familiar to the disciples when Jesus calmed the sea. It was found in the Old Testament the hymnal that they would have used called Psalms 107. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer, familiar for anyone who knows the Old Testament, is simple. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is God Almighty. This is the one who created the heavens and the earth. God is in the boat. God is in the storm. The old Jewish hymn is alive in the calming of the storm. So what are we afraid of? Afraid of the storm? You bet. Scared of deep water? Scared of drowning? Scared of the pain? Yeah. Afraid the marriage will crumble? Afraid the church might split? No wonder they're so timid. What about political unrest? What about violence in this coming election? Good reasons to be afraid. But after the storm, when the sun is out and the sea is as smooth as glass, our text says they became even more afraid. Their fear intensifies. 
Sometimes in the weeks and months after a national disaster, the personal crisis, fear persists and belief can be difficult. Why is that? Why do you think that is? What are we afraid of? Afraid maybe God lost interest? Maybe God evaporated like the morning fog? God disappeared? God walked off stage? Maybe God isn't watching anymore. Maybe God is asleep. That's what they might have been thinking during the storm. Somebody said, wake them up. Somebody said, don't you care? Are those the questions that we're afraid to ask for fear they might be true? Are we afraid to ask the obvious question? Why the storm in the first place? Yeah. Why the storm? Why'd that happen? And while we're at it, why did Jairus' daughter have to die? And why is the woman suffering? Why'd that happen? Why the storm? Why the cancer? Why the pain? Why'd you let him die? Are we afraid to voice our suspicions and doubts to God in the boat? But it's the fear after the storm, the fear that accelerates in our story. Now, what could we be afraid of? Maybe we're afraid that if Jesus is God, then we can't domesticate him. We can't put him on a leash like a dog and say, here, God, sit, God, fetch, God, make God our personal servant. God, while you're out, would you mind picking up some good health and legal protection? And here, I've got a list of enemies that I'd like for you to smite. Maybe we're afraid that if Jesus is God, then he's in control and that he'll act in his own good time. Maybe that's why we're afraid. But in the midst of our fear, Jesus asks us, will you have faith? Not faith in miracles, not faith in some theological point of view, not faith in faith, but faith that Jesus is God, faith to trust Jesus to be God and to direct our lives. In recent years, I'm getting to know you well enough to know that you and I have seen our fair share of storms. We've been in emergency rooms. We visited the funeral homes. We've sat under the green canopy in the cemetery. And this church has had its storms too, a sudden disturbing revelation, the loss of a beloved refounding pastor. We've seen the boat, we thought, take on water. And even the slow developing storms, the ones that take years brewing that never leave, the chronic pain, betrayal, abandonment, poor health, unemployment. We've seen and are now witnessing some violent raging storms across our nation. And where does faith come from? If Mark is our witness, and he claims to be, then our faith comes from the testimony of the twelve for whom Jesus calmed the storm. It comes from the testimony of the woman several years after her painful divorce, and she said she would never have developed confidence to live if she had stayed in that threatening and suffocating marriage. Or a friend of mine, a soldier, blinded by a head wound, who later credits his affliction, his blindness, for forcing him to develop other senses, in his words, to see what few others can see. Tragedies, misfortunes, storms long brewing. Instead of crumbling, instead of quitting, people discover special meaning in what happened. How? How does that happen? Listen to them. They believe. Who is this that calms the storm or not in his own good time is God Almighty. 
Let me close with this prophetic word from this text and one that'll happen just two chapters later. Life imagined and then viewed, life first imagined and then viewed, is our view of Scripture. We imagine it, we envision it, and then we live into it. That's how you explain love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you. That's how you explain love your neighbor as yourself. Life envisioned and then life lived. That's our view of Scripture. We envision it and then we live it. And so here's the prophetic word. In the very near future, you will step into a small boat and lift anchor for the middle of the sea. And just when you lose sight of the shore, a violent and perhaps unexpected storm will hit. It will hit with such gale force that you will despair of life itself. And in your fear, in your fear of the storm, in your fear of the terrifying presence of God, terrifying because God is not our pet or servant, but God Almighty. And in the midst of that fear, God will ask you to have faith, faith that God will answer your prayers, not according to your desires, not according even to your needs, but according to God's steadfast love. And that's the difficult thing. But fortunately, for the story that you will soon live into, Mark has given you a script, a script to read and to perform, words to articulate, words like these. Yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or, in fear and trembling, she touched the hem of his garment. And for those of us who have shown ourselves failures in storms before, faithless in previous trials, even to us, disciples, Jesus will appear once again as he does in chapter 6 in Mark's gospel. Once again on the sea with the winds howling and the water breaking over the bow and you and me straining at the oars, Jesus will walk out into the water and he will say to us, in the sequel to this story, he will say, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. That's who he is.